Um, this is the second, second Sunday of Advent, and uh, what we're doing is taking some time to look at um, the ways that we see and learn and hear about um, the light overcoming the darkness. Last week, we talked about John the Baptist, and we talked about how he understood his mission and his ministry to be that of a, a mission and a ministry that would prepare people, that would help them prepare their hearts for the coming of a Savior. Like, he knew the stakes were high, and so he never lost sight of that. Helping people prepare their hearts to know and believe in and trust in Jesus. That was last week. Today, we're going to take a look at the ancestry or the gene genealogy of Jesus. So, whether you like it or not, love it or kind of hate it, the reality is we all have a family tree. All of us. And it seems to me that lately people have become even more interested in and even more curious about, like, who are the people that I'm related to? Like, what is my family tree? Who are all these people that I'm somehow, some way connected to? And there's a, a, a multitude of ways to do that. Uh, they want to know, like, who am I related to? What does that mean for me personally? And how, what does that mean in my connection with all these other family members? So there's all these different options like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. You know, you've heard of some of them. Uh, but this week when I was reading up uh, a little bit about this, uh, there was um, a publication that was done um, by M MIT, uh, dated in February of this year, uh, where this report says that 26 million people in the United States have added their DNA to four leading companies that research uh, health and ancestry, 26 million. The report goes on to say that if the pace continues the way that it is right now, that in two years, 24 months, these companies will hold the genetic makeup of 100 million people. And I don't, there's all kinds of conversation about who gets to have access to that and who, who it belongs to. Uh, Elizabeth Joe is a law professor at the University of California, and she said this, the first rule of data is once you hand it over, you lose control of it. So I don't know how you feel about that, but I, it's concerning at best and mildly terrifying at worst, right? Um, and at one point in my own life, I thought it might be kind of fun. A couple of years ago, I was thinking about it. It might be kind of fun, you know, just to swab and send that in and see how this came to be. Like, what contributed to this happening, and who can we blame, right? <laughs> and then I thought about it for a little while, and I thought, well, you know, all the information that I hold in my mind of my family tree, like what I already know about my family tree, I decided that maybe I'd be just a little bit better off and maybe even happier if I just leave things as they are, right? Even Ancestry.com, in their privacy statement, have these words. Ready? You may discover unexpected facts about yourself or your family when using our services. Once these discoveries are made, we cannot undo them. <laughs> Sounds a little bit more like a threat statement, right, than a privacy statement. It's like, listen, we're going to tell you, but don't blame us, right? When you find out all about all these people, it can't be undone. It cannot be undone. Our son Sam, in 1996, when he was in kindergarten, made this little family tree. This would be on the screen so you can get a better look at it. There it is, that little family tree. And I still have it. And I've decided that this is about as far as I'm going to take it, right? And I'm going to be perfectly okay with just leaving it at that. 
This morning, we're going to uh, look at the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, if you will, and we're going to see what we can learn from it, not just read it to read it, but what can we learn from it? What does it hold for us um, in the way of dealing with our own families in the way that God intends for us to do? And so I'm going to tell you this. Uh, our scripture this morning is Matthew 1, verses 1 through 18, and this is what I want to invite you to do. Stick with me as I make my way through these names, and I'll stick with you as you make your way through hearing them. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. If you don't have your Bibles with you, the words will be on the screen. Here now, the word of God is found in Matthew 1, the family tree, the genealogy of Jesus, and all the names that go with it. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zara by, by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Jashan, Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jeram, and Jeram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, the names get really interesting, Jeconiah the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Jerobabel, and Jerobabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Thank you. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, our prayer this morning is that you will teach us and we will learn. And we will take what you would have us to learn and apply it to the way that we live our lives so that our lives may be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So all these names, right? So the day that my grandmother died some years ago, we were in the cemetery and uh, my family, some of our kids and I decided to walk around and read some of the headstones in the cemetery. Just read the names because my dad's side of the family, this is where many of them are. Now, my great-grandmother, my father's grandmother, 
was 100%, and as we back, used to say back in the day, full-blooded, right? 100% Native American Indian. And so some of the names on the headstones represent that heritage. And so we're walking around and we're reading some of these names, and I see the name of a great uncle of mine. And his name was Jesse Birdseye Warren. And our son Lee was standing next to me. He was about 11 or 12 years old at the time. And I turned to him and I said, you need to get down on your knees and thank the God who loves you that I did not know about this name on the day that you were born. <laughs> because you would so be Jesse Birdseye Kwiatkowski. Some of these names that we've read will not be familiar to you or they're not familiar to you. Honestly, they're not familiar to me. But some of the names that we read this morning are names that stand out, not always for the best reasons, but some of these names stand out. There are five women mentioned in this listing of the genealogy of Jesus. Five women. There's Tamar. There's Rahab. There's Ruth. There's the wife of Uriah. That doesn't ring a bell. Her name was Bathsheba. And there's Mary. This morning, we're going to talk about the first four women because next Sunday, we're going to be talking a lot about Mary and the song of her heart. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the four women and the stories surrounding them, the unexpected people and the events that cannot be undone. And take a look at that and see what it is that we can learn about our families in looking at the family of Jesus. So the first woman mentioned is Tamar. This is a really complicated story. If you don't know the story of Tamar, let me tell you just a little bit about it because what it says in verse 3 is that Judah is the father of Perez and Zorah with Tamar. Judah is the father with Tamar being the mother. But this is where it gets really complicated because you see Tamar is actually the daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah is her father-in-law and the father of the children. A little complicated there. So see what happened was that Tamar married one of Judah's sons, Ur, and they didn't have any children and he died. And so in, in Levitical law and the way that that worked to maintain those family covenants and those family ties, the next son is to marry the widow of his brother and have children with her. So she marries the next son, but he finds some creative ways to not have a child with her and so then he dies, and Judah's wife dies. And so Judah says to Tamar, like, I know that my only son that's left, I'm supposed to give to you in marriage. And it doesn't say how old he is, but what Judah says is, you're going to need to wait. You're going to need to wait until he gets older, and then he can be your husband. But Judah doesn't do that. He breaks the law. He breaks the covenant. He does not give his only son, and I don't know why. Maybe he felt like he was tired of losing sons to Tamar. But he doesn't give him to her, and she waits. Finally, she decides to take matters into her own hands, and she knows that Judah is leaving to go on a sheep-shearing expedition, right? So for one time and one time only in Tamar's life, she disguises herself as a prostitute and makes sure that she is in the path of Judah. And Judah and Tamar, I'll let you fill in the story, hashtag keeping it family friendly. All right? But when Judah says that he's going to pay her 
for this transaction, this interaction between the two of them. She says, no, what I really want you to do is I, I, I don't want a, a, a goat or a calf. What I really want is I want your seal and I want your cord and, and I want your robe. These are, these are the things that I want. And so Judah gives these things to her um, and your staff, your cord, your staff, and your, and your seal. So he gives her these things, and three months later, it's found out that she's pregnant, but she still has these ties to the family that haven't been, she hasn't been released from. So they bring Tamar to Judah and say, hey, she's still your daughter-in-law, but now she's a widow, and she's pregnant. What should we do with her? And I can't help but think that Judah thought, man, my problems are solved right now. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to burn her at the stake. Seeing her sin and ignoring his own But on the way, as she's being hauled off to be burned at the stake, she says, take this seal and this cord and this staff, present them to Judah and tell him the owner of these things is the father of this child, these children. And Judah recognizes. He knows what he's done. And this is what he says about Tamar. She is found to be more righteous than I. She has acted more rightly than I. Tamar is in the family tree, in the lineage, and the genealogy of Jesus. An unexpected person. Because we might be telling ourselves, well, I mean, this is the family of Jesus. This is the family of the Messiah. Surely God made certain that every single person would be as perfect as they possibly could be. And here's Tamar. And then there's Rahab. Rahab, while Tamar just pretended one time, that was actually Rahab's profession on the regular, right? This is what she did for a living. And yet her story goes that she hid people in the roof of her home. And when Joshua and his army came in to take over the land and everything there, she and her family were protected because of her bravery, because of her courage, because of her willingness to do something that nobody else was willing to do. And she's celebrated for her courage. Rahab, a prostitute in the family tree of Jesus. It doesn't seem like it makes sense. Then there's Ruth. Ruth, who is a Moabite woman, who the Israelites have been told, stay away from the Moabites, right? Don't interact with them. But when Naomi and her husband move, their sons take Moabite women as wives. And then all the men die. And so Naomi goes to her daughter-in-laws, of which Ruth is one, and she says, I have no more sons to offer you. You go back. You go back and be with your family of origin, and I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm an Israelite. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, and I'm going to be with my family of origin. And one daughter-in-law leaves, Orpah leaves in goes to be with her family, but Ruth goes to Naomi and says those words that we are so familiar with, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God, and may he deal with me ever so harshly if I ever break this vow. Ruth was a foreigner in a day and time when the lines 
between people were drawn so harshly and never crossed in her loyalty and in her obedience, an unexpected person in the lineage of Jesus, setting the tone for how we are to respond to one another, whether we come from the same places or not. Ruth moves with Naomi to Bethlehem, and she is a Moabite woman, and there isn't anything she can do about that any more than she can change the color of her skin or the color of her eyes. She goes, an unexpected person, in an event that cannot be undone and is in the lineage of Jesus. So what do we learn from this? Like when we look at these different people, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, and then we also look at your, the wife of Uriah. What is the story there? King David, when all these people are listed as to who they are, the fathers of, there's only a few times that the mothers are listed, and this time she's not even listed by name. It just says David is the father of King Solomon with the wife of Uriah. So that story is a story of adultery, and David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. He has Uriah killed to cover up that sin, which, by the way, trying to cover up sin seldom really works, just for the record. David, in the lineage of the Messiah of Jesus, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, it's it's notable that this is how Matthew words this. Even though at the time of Solomon's birth, Bathsheba has become David's wife, he still says, he still mentions it, still finds it pertinent to say the wife of Uriah. And so what can happen for us sometimes when we um, look at our own families is we might think to ourselves, you know, like my family is the messiest, oddest, wildest family in the history of the world. When we sit at our tables with our family members, when we hear the stories of distant cousins and distant relatives, we might think to ourselves, my family is so broken. It's probably the most broken family in the history of the world. And yet we read Jesus's lineage his ancestry, and we see this brokenness, and we see sinfulness, we see messiness and chaos, and we see that God takes all of it and uses it in a way that the light overcomes that darkness. The holidays can be a time when it becomes painfully obvious to us, the dysfunction in our families. When we sit around tables across from people, we'd probably rather not. We might become convinced that our family dynamics are the worst. When siblings aren't speaking to each other and parents have to pretend it isn't happening that way. When reality is too painful and too bizarre to face up to and admit. When we sit face to face across from people that we've loved all our lives and had such hope for and have to recognize what addiction is doing to their lives.
When infidelities rock the foundation of our homes and our families, it can seem like running away from that pain and brokenness is the best and only alternative. And it is in those situations that we might convince ourselves and begin to believe that the darkness in our family tree has won. But I want you to hear me say this this morning. The light of Christ always, always holds the power to overcome the darkness. Always. And when we look at the limitations in our lives and in our families, we must hold on to the reality and the truth that God isn't limited by anything we're limited by, that God never has been, is not now, and never will be limited by our messiness, by our chaos, by our brokenness. As a matter of fact, God's love for us is so intense that God will actually take some of those unexpected people and those events that cannot be undone and use them to create more light in the darkness that we see and the darkness that we experience, the darkness that maybe we've convinced ourselves has won, hasn't won. It hasn't won and it will not win. The light of Christ always holds the power to overcome the darkness in our lives, in our world, and in our families. It is good for us to remind ourselves that these little broken families of ours, they're God's gift to us. It is good for us to remind ourselves that when we feel unworthy or when we look at our family and find it to be unworthy, that it is through the righteousness and the worthiness of God that we find our own worth and our own righteousness. When we sit around the tables at family gatherings and are reminded of the grief or the loss, the pain or the brokenness, I believe we still must hold on to this truth that the light always has the power over the darkness, always. It is good that we remind ourselves of this, that God is always worthy, even in the brokenness of our families. I had a really good friend in College Station who was probably one of the most eccentric friends I've ever had. She went to a family event one day and she called me when she came home and she said, family is such an awesome thing except when it isn't. And what do we do? What do we choose to believe when this awesome gift from God doesn't feel so often? I think that it's true that there are unexpected people in all our families. There are events that cannot be undone. And while that is 100% true, it is also 100% true that nothing exists outside of the redeeming power of God all these people that we read in the lineage and the ancestry of Jesus, all of these unexpected people, all of these events that cannot be undone, all redeemed by God and used by God. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart, even after all that brokenness and all that sinfulness. Tamar is said to be more righteous than Judah. Rahab is celebrated for her bravery, her courage and valor. Ruth, a foreign woman in a foreign land, 
whose story is now read at Jewish celebrations and whose words are used in many wedding ceremonies. So I want to say this to you this morning. Don't give up. Don't give up. Believe that God can take those unexpected facts, those events that cannot be undone, and redeem them, and redeem them. Redeem them and bring goodness to the broken pieces in our lives. Redeem them and pick up the pieces and weave together a beautiful tapestry called our little family tree. In him we have the power to overcome, and it is good that we remind ourselves of this. It is good that we remember that those unexpected people and those events that cannot be undone do not exist outside of the redeeming power of God, not the lineage of Jesus and not your ancestry either. Let's pray together about that. God, we thank you for the promise uh, that you make to us of your redeeming power. We thank you that the light of Christ always holds the power to overcome the darkness, no matter what that may be in our lives. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to see our families as gifts to us from you, to see our families in a way that you see them, unexpected people, events that can't be undone, God, as ways that you will spread light in the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.